This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Driven by Data, the podcast, season two, powered by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. We're delighted to bring you another season of Driven by Data, the podcast, which boasts even more data analytics and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Our aim remains the same to uncover how some of the most prominent leaders within the data analytics community tackle our industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, ideas and experience. And just as in season one, to give back to the global data and analytics community. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. So just a quick one before we get into today's episode. I am super excited to not only be attending, but also moderating a session at the upcoming Carinium Chief Data and Analytics Officers UK event, which runs from the 5th to the 7th of September. It's a three-day conference from Carinium seeking to provide unique networking experiences and thought leadership for executives of the data and analytics community. Uh, I've had a look through the agenda and the itinerary and there are some really amazing people um, going to be involved across the three days from panel discussions, discussion groups, keynote speeches, etc. Uh, I personally am going to be speaking and moderating the discussion group around how to build a great data team which is taking place on the second day which is the 6th of September at 3.30 p.m. That is discussion group 1A. There's going to be a lot of content in there. There's a few other people kind of co-moderating with me and it's going to be a really lively debate around the key facets of what it takes to build a truly great data team. It's not too late for you to come and join us. All you have to do is register using the link that I've popped into this episode's show notes. I look forward to seeing you there. Speak soon. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast season two. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Ranil Bateju, who is the Group Chief Data and Analytics Officer at Lloyd's Banking Group. So, Ranil, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Carl. Thank you for having me. I'm really, um, really excited to be part of your podcast. So, um, yeah, really, really, um, really pleased. So, thank you. No, 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 you don't need to thank me. The pleasure's all ours. So where we always start, Ranil, is by asking our guests to give themselves a uh, a brief introduction into their background and, I guess, journey up until uh, this point in time, if uh, if you'd be so kind. No worries. So look, I'm, um, I was born in London, grew up in London. And when I was 10, my family, my good fortune, moved to Sydney, Australia. So um, that's kind of where I did high school, university. I studied um, chemical engineering at university. That's Weirdly, what I'd always wanted to do when I was a kid, I wanted to be a chemical engineer and uh, finally did it and started work as a chemical engineer, worked in a nickel smelter uh, in the West Australian desert for a while. And within sort of six months, I realized actually, despite having wanted to do that all my life, I'm a big city kid and uh, want to go back. And um, so I was very fortunate in that I was able to get into a graduate program at ING. At the time, they were hiring lots of people with quantitative skills like engineers and um so I got into the graduate program and uh, in my first rotation, I worked in um, the marketing department and my first project was basically database mining, right? Uh, database marketing. And, um, you know, that was kind of my first real exposure to data and analytics. And I realized I really loved it. I realized it was really using a lot of my um, quantitative skills, analytical skills from engineering, but also my creativity and solving problems and framing them in a, um, you know, kind of a consumer colleague kind of lens. So I got hooked. I actually quit the graduate program and decided that I was going to really focus on um, data mining, data analytics. And basically, I I sort of um, uh, really progressed uh, through that path for, since then, right? So it's been about um, 24 years now. So it's it's quite a while. So when I started, I was definitely in um, in that first generation of uh, sort of data miners in in banks and um, was in Australia for about a decade, um, then working at various banks and telcos. And then I decided I wanted to 
see the world. So I moved to Singapore. I ran analytics for a British bank in Singapore, Standard Chartered. So had a sort of a global remit. Um, Fuse later, I took on a very similar role at HSBC in Hong Kong. So I did that for about um, decent while. And then uh, HSBC moved me to London. So again, with a global remit where I ran data and analytics for, for about a decade, had loads of fun. And then, yeah, recently joined Lloyd's Banking about um, almost 10 months ago. So that, that's kind of my, that's my backstory. Um, London's now home. You know, my kids have lived all over the world, but they've been in London now for, for about seven or eight years. So this is home. My wife's a Kiwi, um, so um, yeah, I mean, we, we we love it. We live in Southwest London, and yeah, uh, really enjoying, um, you know, the summer weather at the moment. Reminds me, reminds us of Sydney. <laughs> yeah, um, well, look, that that is some that is some story and some journey, right? Chemical engineering in the desert in Australia to now the the group CDAO of Lloyd's Banking Group in London and various countries and and pit stops along the way. So now looking forward to kind of unpacking this, Renil. So obviously. Lloyd's Banking Group, a mammoth organisation, just like the other organisations that you've worked in previously as well. Um, I guess we've got listeners from all over the world. So 13, over 13,000 listeners in 116 different countries, Renil. So um, I know that most people in the UK will, will certainly know who Lloyd's are, but just give us a, a, a broad kind of steer on the business and, and what Lloyd's Banking Group, who they are, what they do, et cetera, for our listeners who may be not familiar. Yeah, sure. So uh, Lloyd's Banking Group is um, Britain's biggest bank, right? So serves about 26 million customers um, across all segments. So, you know, from um, retail, insurance and wealth, business banking, uh, high-end corporate, uh, the whole, basically all segments and all products. And um, it's been around for more than, um, more than like since 16, since the 1650s, I think 1658 was the, so it's, it's a, very important part of the British economy and has a major role in society. So it's been around for a, for a while. Uh, the symbol is a black horse, the galloping horse. So it's it's a very um, sort of highly recognised um, high street brand. But within it, there's a bunch of sub-brands, right? So there's Scottish Widows, which serves insurance wealth. There's a, um, uh, you know, various auto lease uh, kind of services. So it's got a range of brands, but yeah, it's very well known in the UK and is, you know, pretty much number one and number two in every single market category. Um, I, I I was kind of, um, you know, obviously been living in England for a while, so seven or eight years. So I, I knew it reasonably well in terms of as a consumer. I'd known it since I was a kid. But my reasons for joining it, um, I'm kind of keen to share those. So I'd, I'd been working in uh, standard chartered HSBC for about... 12 years, right? So Singapore, Hong Kong, London, where I'd had pretty large global remits. So at HSBC, I had coverage of about 20 markets and massive team, 1,700 uh, people in the team. You know, I had a big offshore center in, in Guangzhou in China. There was one in Bangalore, Calcutta. We had teams in 20 countries. So great role, lots of scale. Um, but, you know, during the pandemic, I, I kind of felt, you know, I've got a lot of experience. I've been doing this now for 24 years, but global roles for the last like kind of 12 I really want to refocus on a single geography again and and go deep and you know really put all of my experience uh, to use in one country and see how far I can really take it right so that mm. was kind of thinking about that and then in the context of that I, I sort of stumbled upon Lloyd's Banking Group's purpose right so they've got a really interesting purpose it's helping Britain prosper and I'd literally just read a book by um, Simon Sinek about uh, infinite games about how you want to set goals for yourself that aren't that aren't finite right and He'd used lots of examples of, of organizations where they've got fairly narrow goals like being number one in wealth in Asia or being number one in mortgage money. And, you know, I kind of felt oh, it was boring. I want something infinite. And then I stumbled up, well, Lloyd's, you know, helping Britain prosper. And immediately I was like quite intrigued. thought, you know what, it's a single geography. It's got this um, great purpose. So I was intrigued by the purpose, infinite. But I also felt, you know what, I can make that purpose come to life with the skills that I have and know, right? So whether it's machine learning and AI capabilities or personalization or behavioral economics, you can make that real with data. Thought, you know what, it's a great fit. So that was kind of one of the reasons. The second one was really around the scale of the data. So, you know, I, you know, I love data. I feel data, you know, with data, um, you can predict anything. I had a, a colleague in my, in my old team who used to say, um, you know, if you give me enough data and I can predict anything, sort of like Archimedes and give me a big enough lever and I can move the world. And Lloyd's has, you know, 26 million customers. The depth and breadth is is phenomenal. You know, the transactions, the, the payments, the anomalies. So I thought, 
wow, what a what an incredible data set in in this you know really in the country I live, great purpose. And then the third reason was um, I knew that you know at that time it had been announced that um, Charlie Nunn, who I'd worked with at HSBC, was coming to Lloyd's, and I thought, wow, a sort of a, a very technology savvy CEO, like you'd, you'd say more of a technologist than a banker. He's got you know enough skills to run a tech company. And what I'd always felt with with data and analytics is to be successful, you need that top-down sponsorship. You can only go so far bottoms up, right? You've got to convince people. But the moment you've got a senior leader, the CEO, sponsoring the area that you're in, that's gold. So I thought, wow, these three things, I'm going to join. So that, that was kind of my, that was the pull of, um, of coming to, to Lloyd's Banking Group. Yeah, yeah. I think there's so much in there that I'm looking forward to, to kind of unpacking, Renil. And obviously the the purpose is always something that intrigues me because I find that there's not many organizations that um, have the ability to articulate other than some of the very obvious things like you outlined before, right? You know, like be number one in X market or whatever the case may be. Um, so interested to understand how you're going to piece that together yeah. in terms of helping. But um, I, I guess, obviously, you've come in as the group CDAO. Just tell us kind of broadly speaking, what, what you're being tasked with achieve. What's what's your goal on a personal slash professional level in terms of, you know, what the expectation is on you? Yeah, I'll start with the expectation from the organization. I'll then go to what is it that I want to do, right? Because there's, you know, <laughs> so um, at an organization level, I'm basically accountable for the bank's data strategy. And, you know, coming in, you know, there was an expert, right, come in, um, have a look around, create a data strategy, and then and then really use that to enable the bank's business strategies. And that, that's a really important word in that the point of a data strategy is to, you know, to be honest, you've got to start with your business. If you've got a business and customer strategy, that's what you need. And then really how do you use data to enable that, that enabling, I'll call it a data strategy. And, and it's really important because I think in, in years gone by, you know, um, I, I, I personally would get confused or organizations would get confused around business strategy data, are these can be, no, they're not. One needs to enable your broader approach to how you want to serve customers and society. So that's that was quite important. So in the context of that, um, you know, defined a sort of a data strategy, it's got four pillars, um, you know, which which are fairly standard. There's some things that, that are quite interesting. So the first one is really data culture. So, you know, it's really important if you're going to invest in data capabilities that you have the right culture that enables um, the organization to use that. So the culture pillar is very much focused on data literacy. It's focused on making sure that everyone in the organization has the right skills to really exploit data. But as well as um, within the analytics communities and the data communities that we've got really clear career paths, we know exactly where colleagues are at, we know where they need to get to, and we give them options about how they can grow their career, as well as work through how do we build the right talent pipeline. So that, that's kind of really the culture pillar. The next pillar, again, fairly standard for a CDA, right, is uh, data foundation. So this covers data management, um, ethics, policy, resilience, governance, all of the things that um, you would expect a highly regulated bank to have in place to make sure its data is safe, understood and fit to use. Right. So that's that's the foundations pillar. The third pillar is very much focused on um, platforms and tooling, and it's really about enabling Lloyd's Banking Group with a range of uh, capabilities, but predominantly public cloud. So how do we leverage the compute and capacity and all the capabilities you get with public cloud to really create um, machine learning and data products and various services that we can expose directly to customers, to colleagues, or to other parts of the bank who will then use them. So that's that's basically the third piece. And then finally, the, the fourth pillar is very much about enabling capabilities like conversational banking, intelligent automation, personalization, really think about how you can package these up to create very different um, customer experiences, uh, which are, you know, primarily, you know, via your mobile, which which means a, a different way of a bank and customer interacting. And so, so those, those are the four pillars. That's what I'm really tough. So within that, I've got a uh, like a core team, like a CDO team. I've also got oversight of fairly large engineering platform as well. So that that's kind of that's kind of the the core work. And you know, I'm, I'm writing the the weeds and the detail in getting the strategy moving and just delivering the various kind of sub programs within that. So that that's kind of bank. If I get that done, super happy. What do I want to do though? So if I kind of you know fast forward, right? So I, I mentioned our um, I mentioned our purpose 
And, you know, that, that, that was the pull for me was lots of banks have amazing data capabilities, amazing machine learning, amazing AI, right? But when, when I look at how they actually use those capabilities, they don't use them well, right? They, you know, there's a lot of focus and effort on, you know, cross-sell and, you know, trying to, you know, it's all about how you can find opportunities and make money. And so for me, our purpose at Lloyds Bank unlocks different opportunities. So we can use, we can create better capabilities. That's the goal. I'm going to do what everyone's doing better. So leapfrog everyone else, but then use that to come up with very different ways of using data to actually help customers achieve their longer-term goals, like use use messaging and behavioral analytics and, you know, in, in a very different way. And whilst everyone's been talking about this, no one's actually, you know, so for me, my sort of personal success is I want to transform the bank that I'm at with data such that we can actually live up to our purpose and help customers, you know, um, help them prosper, help them achieve their goals, whatever those are, within the boundaries of consent and ethics and privacy that they've all consented to, but, you know, really help them in, in quite a different way. So that, that's kind of, that's my personal, you know, reason for getting up in the morning and, you know, coming to work is I want to do that. I want to see that out. And as I said, trying to do that in in a single country where I can focus just on that a lot easier than trying to spread myself thin. So that, that's that's kind of my goal. Yeah. I'm really keen, Ranil, to kind of try and get into some detail on how that enabling of data and the culture around that is going to, to help Britain prosper and, and obviously Lloyd's kind of hit their hit the or you know stride towards their their purpose and, and their goals. I guess just to take us back a step. Have you noticed anything in terms of, I guess, the role that data and analytics is playing in terms of banking? Because obviously you've worked at some major organisations, right, some big, big brands, and I'm sure there's been a bit of a trajectory that you've noticed around just how data analytics has, has evolved, basically, within, you know, the banking sector. Yeah, so look, when I, when I started, this was um, 1998, right, so at that time, you know, it wasn't really well understood, right? So data mining was like a hot topic, database mining, these are all kind of buzzwords. And, you know, all the Harvard Business Review stuff was out saying this is, you know, everyone needs to get on this. And there was, there was a lot of hype about it. So it wasn't well understood, but it was still seen as something very cool. And if I think about my first few years, right? So built loads of models, you know, um, logistic regression models for cross-sell, segmentation, did lots of work, right? But if I think about, what was the economic impact? It was pretty minimal, right? So it was like basically not much, right? And, you know, it was a real struggle to try and get the, um, back then it was cold calling from contact centers. They just wanted to call everyone. And so trying to convince them to use models, those, and, you know, so your value add in terms of actual bottom line impact was was small. Um, similarly, you were considered cool. So it's not like I was, um, you know, so people, yeah, data mining is cool. However, um, you know, you were sort of somewhat sidelined, you know, the, the product teams and the marketing teams and the distribution teams, that's where all the, right, we're driving the business, right? So fast forward, so that was late nights, fast forward 24 years later, quarter of a century later, right? So data is at the absolute heart of, of a bank. So, you know, this world of, we can get by with just our distribution and our brand. No one actually says that anymore. Everyone knows that they've got to compete on their data edge. It's, how you use data and digital to create better experiences. People are doing that. Now it's how do I use data to actually create very different um, outcomes for customers to help them achieve their goals. So everyone now gets that. So, so what, what that's meant is that the role of data has really changed. So we're now at the heart of every conversation. So you know we're, we're seen as a core enabler of any business strategy. It starts with data. You know, So my team, myself, we're in all of the key, uh, I guess, leadership teams, leadership tables. Like we have a seat at the table and a very powerful voice and people lining up to fund us. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I had to go cap in hand and build business cases. And I remember like it was 2005 trying to get the bank. It was another big bank in Australia, one of the big four, trying to get them to invest in personalization. And, you know, it was just a year of business cases. And now it's people turning up with loads of cash because they understand what they need to do to compete. So that's that's a huge shift. Um, it's meant that data people have had to become much more business savvy, right? So the ability to um, really apply apply data to solve business problems is kind of really the core 
rainmaking skill rather than just I can build a really cool algorithm that's very predictive, right? So framing a problem, knowing when to apply it, which analytics technique, which capability, how do you actually see those opportunities? How do you see opportunities to build data products? That's now kind of the, the core competency. So that part has changed a lot. But what I would say is, so I got into data and analytics almost serendipitously, right? So I, you know, it was it was a great role. I, I loved this. I had the skills and I liked the work. I liked insights. I liked predicting stuff. That kind of you know, that that felt so it, it wasn't like I, I knew it was going to explode, but it has. So the reality is it's blown up. All of the predictions around the shortage of talent have come have come to pass. Right. So anyone that for whatever reason got into this space, uh, write it out. Right. You, you're going to have an amazing career. And I think I think the trend that I see is, you know, rather than, you know, when I started, right, you're doing analytics and data. When do you want to get a business role now? business roles are data roles. So that, that's kind of really the conversion. So which is, I, I think is great for anyone in the space and uh, anyone that's joining data analytics. It means that you've got a really solid uh, future ahead of you and lots of exciting opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. Obviously, there's been such a, a shift even, you know, I've been in the industry on the other side of the fence, of course, for the last 12 years. And obviously back then it was very much, you know, data analytics people were very technical right and that's that was their role whereas now obviously we we're often talking about and i think we're just starting to get to grips with actually that you know the enablement of data and analytics teams to a business is to help them transform you know to be fit for the future in terms of what they want to do and and that's their that's their role which obviously makes it um makes it really interesting i guess how then do you decipher and try and you know understand and kind of lay the vision for what good looks like and you know how how are you going to win effectively what what does winning look like for you within lloyd's banking group yes so for me i think the starting point is to so there's there's two ways that i look at so i think the first thing is to win, you've really got to invest in your enabling platforms and, you know, organizations that have, you know, spent the time to invest properly in a fit for purpose data platform with data organized and understood and cataloged with the right guardrails and with the right tooling and the right um, ability to expose those algorithms to customers and colleagues, you know, and really close that last mile. They are the ones that are going to win, right? So, so I think part of it is, um, that's the less sexy part of, you know, the world of data and analytics, right? Just investing in platforms. But unless you do that, you're not going to win. So I think step one is hygiene. You've got to actually get that in really good order, right? Because no matter how smart your data scientists are and your predictions, unless you can actually um, close that last mile or get the data into the stack in the first place to build the predictions, it just won't work. So I feel getting a, a really, um, you know, kind of, um, Robust platform is, is absolutely critical. In parallel, though, what you also need to start doing is work back, work backwards from the use cases and really think through um, across a whole number of domains. You know, what are the what are the use cases that are going to drive a differentiated customer experience, a differentiated colleague experience, or a a, a more cost effective um, uh, operational process? And, and you know, it's literally every part of the banking value chain. There are processes, decisions, you know, that humans make or machines make badly. And it's it's kind of really working through all of that, prioritizing what are the use cases that you want to start with and just building those use case by use case. So you've got to do both in parallel. Um, where lots of organizations fail is all the efforts on going away, building a platform in the center. You wheel it out, ta-da, five years later, you've spent you know, hundreds of millions of pounds and dollars, and then the business has moved on, right? So that, that model doesn't work. Alternatively, it's teams that just build the use cases and they build them tactically and they, they build loads and they drive lots of value, can't be scaled, and you, you're not really future-proof because you haven't got... So you've got to strike a middle balance between, you've got to build the platform, right? You've got to invest in that as you're delivering use cases. And sometimes you you make trade-offs, you, you may say, so... In previous firms, I've said, right, in the first year, let's try and deliver use cases as tactically as possible so that we can get some runs on the board to show value. And then in year two, let's then really refocus the funding on the platform. So th there's options and trade-offs to be made. It it's not 
you know, you've got to really think through where you are in the investment cycle. What's the belief in what you're doing? So you, you can sort of trade off. One thing I would say, though, Kyle, is I'd say, you know, one of the other trends over the last, I would say it's probably now 10 years is 10 years ago, um, it was all about the data scientist was king and everyone was all about hiring expensive data scientists with PhDs. And I think what people have realized is actually um, you need to enable data science. So the role of a data engineer, the role of an ML ops, ML engineer, those are, you know, probably more critical. And actually that's that's kind of where a lot of the, um, that's where a lot of the talent shortages are, right? So, you know, there's not enough organizations have done enough work on their platforms. So now there's almost a, a huge shortage of, you know, really good data engineers that, you know, understand cloud. So that's, that's kind of the new the new talent ground, to be honest, rather than data scientists, which are very important, but unless they're enabled, can't can't really add, um, uh, add a lot of value. Yeah, absolutely. Without question. I mean, it's been a, a very fascinating kind of transition that we've been on, right? Because as you said, um, many businesses, when they started off on this data analytics journey was what do we need? You know, they, they wanted to be data driven, right, in quotation marks. So, so that meant they spun up a, a platform and hired a, a team full of data scientists and, you know, no foundations in place to ever leverage any value from that. And, and I think we've probably learned the hard way by a, a lot of invested, you know, millions of, of pounds and dollars and euros or wherever you are in the world. Um, and now realized, hang on, that we need to do this a bit more strategically and work backwards from the business problem and obviously yeah from a talent perspective you know even as even as little as five years ago right you know the data science was the uh scientist was the you know sexiest job title of the 21st century and and that kind of plowed a load of people into that domain and that kind of coincided with businesses realizing that they may have started in the wrong place here and and now as you said the engineering space is is really where businesses are, are focusing their attention to get their house in order which makes um which makes perfect sense what do you envisage then, Renil, will be the kind of big challenges for you ahead in kind of executing on this strategy to support and enable the business strategy? So this is a challenge, not just for me. So basically everyone in the entire world now that wants to transform their business with cloud and, and data and, and, and machine learning, right? So the big challenge is exactly as um, McKinsey and all the the, the 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 big four consulting companies, all the pundits predicted like 12 years ago. I remember reading this in 2010 and feeling very happy that, you know, there'll be a shortage of data people because that's what I do. It's like, wow, <laughs> you know, that's, that's going to be good for me, right? But it, it hasn't been good for me. It means that there's just not enough people. So there's not enough people going to the universities, taking the courses to basically do the work. So so that's that's a real challenge. And what that means is if organizations are serious about transforming their businesses with data, you can't rely anymore just on hiring people off the street or poaching them from your competitors. What you've got to do is now double down on um, basically investing in the pipeline. So much, much bigger graduate programs. So training all sorts of graduates, regardless of what their you know academic background is, um, as long as they've got an aptitude and really want to do this, uh, train them such that they can start as your, your your more junior workforce across a whole range of distance. So got to do that. There's got to be a much, much greater focus on reskilling people within organizations. So uh, in one of my previous firms, we um, when we were building bots, chatbots, we decided that um, we would actually um, seek volunteers from the contact center team, so call center agents who wanted to learn. We trained a few of them up. And basically, um, for, for those, so they put their hand up, they had some aptitude, we trained them. They actually turned out to be really good in terms of the cross-functional bot team and that they understood intent. They understood, they had some really good insight. Uh, so coupled with their technical skills, I feel there's a much greater focus now on reskilling people, retraining people internally, uh, taking people from, you know, you can start as a, uh, like a, a, a BI analyst, move to be a data analyst, move to be a, a data scientist, to a data engineer, to a, you know, uh, 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 ML engine, ML. So there's a whole number of career paths that organizations need to uh, to basically uh, affect. So I would say that that's probably the biggest challenge is getting enough talent to really do the work when the whole world has decided to do this at the same time. So that that's that's kind of the the big one is how do I how do I train enough people? How do I uh, retain talent? How do I grow talent? Um, that that's kind of if I think about 
you know, what's the core competency of a CDAO now? It's, it's um, you know, it's building and growing talent is is one of the core skills, I, I, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And as you'd expect, given our line of work, obviously, we, you know, we, we harp on about the importance of having the right people in the right seats at the right time. I think it's, um, as you said, you know, there's there's certainly a talent shortages within certain domains for for sure but i think you know exactly what you said you know we need to get yeah. better at getting getting more people into the industry at an earlier age right so and, and, I, and yeah, yeah investing and I, the, the pipelines right and yeah diverse talent is really so it's getting you know uh, particularly with data scientists and you know and uh, like you want diverse people um, looking at problems because people have very different perspectives. And, you know, I've seen, really seen that where having different people looking at the same problem, you get very, very different outcomes. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, and the reskilling is, you know, really important. I think that's the thing we're starting to realize now. There's just not enough people for the here and now for every business in the world to have their pick of the talent that they want. So we need to get creative around a getting more people into the industry for, you know, future proofing our, our kind of workforce, but also, you know, there's also now a big appreciation. And my next point that I want to get into with you, Renil, is not all of these roles need to be highly technical, right? So there's certain yes. things. So what, I, what I've noticed um, about you and some of the roles that you've been advertising lately, there's quite a lot around the the non-technical skills, right? So a lot around, you know, like a manager of data culture and communication, yeah. for example, um, a, a group head of data ethics, you know, these things historically have never been a thing. And now businesses, especially big businesses like yours, are starting to realize that there's a real key pivotal role for somebody and you know these roles could potentially be you know great for people that can reskill right you know out of other business areas and, and things like that so just talk us through why the emphasis sure. on some of those kind of non-technical roles and, and why you've gone down that route sure so before i do that i just want to say even with the technical roles so all over the world some of the best people I've had in my technical roles, whether they're data scientists or data engineers, have come from a really like a, a very wide variety of backgrounds. So when I was in Australia, ran a big team at um, one of the big four banks there, um, the woman that was leading, um, you know, the cards analytics pillar, right? She really good, was fantastic. Um, she'd started, she left school and was an acrobat. And um, that's what she did. And then she she was really good at maths and then she went back to university did a few courses and then fell into basically um cards analytics and became really good at it right but so, so that's one example i've had um people in the team with language backgrounds so people that have done like uh like a degree in like um latin who finished and then you know what um somehow fell into analytics did loads of courses learnt lots of skills and actually found, you know what, the way that I'm structuring problems in my head is actually good for framing problems and become quite good data scientists. So loads of engineers uh, end up being really good data scientists. Like when I say engineers, so not computer engineers or software engineers, but people that have got mechanical engineering backgrounds, chemical engineering, industrial engineering. You know, we've got um, arts graduates. Um, one of our uh, really solid analytics leads in Hong Kong uh, had done like an English degree. So you, you need to have some sort of aptitude, like you, you want to have a desire and aptitude for trying this out, regardless of what your, um, your, your previous skills are. And you've also got to continuously learn. So everything I do today uh, at work, I didn't do three years ago. A lot of the technologies are new and every day I'm learning new things. So it's less about what you know it's more about what can you learn? What's so that's on the technical side. So so it's you know you don't necessarily need to be. So I want to make that point. It's just that you, you but you do need to want to be technical, right? So what I'm not saying is you can get generalists in who uh, you know just know nothing about the technology and no they're not going to work either. You need people who want to learn about technology, will continuously learn, but doesn't necessarily matter what background you have. So that's on the technology side, right? The other roles that I've been, um, you know, furiously promoting on social media. So those are, uh, and the reason there's a lot of them is those are new areas, right? So um, data ethics and privacy, right? These are things that have emerged over the last, you know, kind of four or five years. And it's definitely an area that um, it's new, right? And it, it's one we're going to put a special, special focus on. Um, areas like data culture. So 
um, everyone now realizes there's no point in investing in um, billions or hundreds of millions of pounds on data tech if the business users don't understand how to use it, right? So I'll take things like um, visualization, right? So when I started work, there was a whole bunch of capabilities like business objects and all, and no one really used them. So, so back then it was because you drag and click something and it would work for like 10 minutes, right? So the performance was there. Fast forward 20 years later, it got the performance and it works really well, but business people won't use them unless they really know how to. And so you're really wasting your money. If you, so we've got a big focus on trying to get everyone uh, understanding how to use data, how to be really comfortable with it and understand uh, how to think about privacy and consent, data sharing, right? So these are things that everyone needs, but also just the basics of how do I do analysis? If I've got a dashboard with all the data, how do I need to use that? What do I need to look out for? So a much bigger focus than that, because I think where we're going as a as a sort of profession is the days of data and analysts, people being the high priests of data, are, those are gone, right? So we're going to a world where more and more data will be democratized. Um, it'll be a lot easier to use. More people will have this skill. So I'm trying to, you know, and many others who do what I do, we're trying to prepare our organizations for that change, right? How do we actually get people upskilled for that world where you don't need as many data specialists because it's it's pervasive. And about seven or eight years ago, I remember reading, right? So um, I can't remember the name of the person that uh, first um, wrote the article, but, you know, the analogy they used was um, in the 1920s, there was a role called chief electricity officer. And it's like, right, electricity is new. We need a special team. We need a CEO to, you know, kind of run it. And then within like place, you know what? It's all pervasive. We don't need them. Um, everyone needs to do this. And data's on that same trajectory, right? So uh, will there be CDAOs in five years? I don't think there will. And it's something that I say to, um, I said it at, um, you know, whenever I do an interview, right? So I don't want to build up a big CDAO empire. I want to enable a business with data such that ideally um, you don't need me, right? And, and, and you know, I can do uh, a business role. My role's big. So that, that's kind of the, the path. So in the context of that, the focus on culture is really important. So it's, must get um, basically people understanding how to use the right data mindsets, understanding about ethics, the basic capabilities, how to read a chart. There's a really great book I read uh, a couple of years ago called um, Why Charts Lie. And, you know, it's just going through COVID, right? Just realizing actually no one on the news, none, they just don't understand how to interpret data. Politicians, like the number of times there was an exponential chart. You can see it's going to go exponential, but you know all the no, everything's fine. Oh my God, it's it's spiked up, right? So, data literacy will be taught in school soon. Like it's it's um it's something that's important as numeracy and just basic literacy, right? So so that that's that's the way we're going, and so that's why the the culture roles you'll see more and more of them that people realise they've got to really invest in this, not forever, but to get people to that to that stage where they're really comfortable. Yeah, hundred percent agree. I think we've obviously again probably learned the hard way right but the the role of the cdao or the cdao office now is very much seen as especially in larger businesses as that agent of change and transformation who is going to transform how the business operates and obviously you know we all know the research and the stats around why you know x amount of projects don't hit the value that they were intended to add because of things like culture so it's good to see now that you know there's a real big focus on that because as we've said you know a lot of businesses have spent multi-millions if not billions of pounds on investing tech and platforms and models and dashboards and you know implementing all this in a in a in an attempt just to kind of think once it's been built that the business will flock around them to to use it right and that's not necessarily been um being the case i guess one thing i really want to get into renil and as i said earlier before we finish up because i'm conscious of, of of your time um is a business you know we, we talk a lot now around the data strategy strategy enabling the business strategy which is is absolutely right i think what i've seen and and this you know across the board so obviously it's not necessarily based on specifics around certain types or size of organizations but um the bigger orgs this probably not is applicable to but many businesses like you know trying to link the data strategy to the business strategy is really difficult because often the people that are trying to do that who work in you know the cdo or whoever isn't probably as privy to that information as they ought to be right so there's a challenge there so first of all keen to get your thoughts on that but then also i guess moving from 
the strategy of the business and how that interacts with the wider purpose of helping Britain prosper. Just talk us how those three things kind of link together within kind of your remit. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, one of the things that has changed over the last few years is, you know, the whole concept of like 20th century organisational structures where you've got teams and departments and they're all very siloed. So, yes, you know, banks still have those, right? But how people work is very different, right? So in the main, people form much more organic cross-functional teams. And, and so a lot of it's from, you know, things like Scrum and Agile where working cross-functional. So I'd say, um, you know, 20 years ago, right, there were much greater divides between departments. Those are still there. But more and more you see basically people with quite different skill sets coming together and forming a cross-functional team, squad or whatever you want to call it, to solve a specific outcome. So, so I think number one, that way of working is is very effective. Uh, people are obviously pre the pandemic, this worked a lot better, right? So typically people were co-located, sit around the same desk, they solve problems together, there's no um, time lag. So that approach really works in terms of bringing data and business together. So one of the things I'd encourage anyone in an analytics or data team to do is Basically, you need to really obviously continuously evolve your technical skills. But one of the other things that you also need to understand is uh, a domain, right? So you need to have an understanding or knowledge about a specific business or customer domain and, and actually also focus on your domain skills as well as your technical skills. And ideally, try and move around across a few different domains. And the the, the really good whether it's a CIO or a CTO or a CDAO or a, a data engineer, right? People that have done a range of different jobs um, tend to have a much broader kind of mindset. So, so I think that that's kind of really important. Um, I think it's really important. So again, in the context of things like data culture, right? So embedding data people into business. So if you're, you know, the more the closer you get your analytics and uh, engineering and to where the money's being made and that's more cross-functional, that works really well. So again, th these these are the sorts of things that people do where rather than have, right, you've got to go to this central, you know, kind of hub to get things done. How do you get the hub to push itself up so it's more embedded in where the business makes money? So obviously you can only do that when you're mature. If you're trying to create a new competence, you can't just push it out because you'll never do it. But the, the, the goal that, you know, many organizations are thinking about, right, I'm going to build a capability I'm going to mature it. When it's mature, I'm going to then federate it out. And I'll still keep people together via, a, uh, you know, like a, a, a tribe or a guild or a chapter so that we can manage, you know, consistency in, you know, things like training and upskilling and learning pathways. But effectively, the closer out to the business, and then I'll focus on the next competence they want to develop, develop in the center, push it out. So that's that's the model that we kind of really need to adopt. And that's why I say, Roles like the old CEOs where you've got thousands of people all in your little tent and you're you're the the baron of a fiefdom, those those don't really work. And it's it, you've got to be very generous in terms of building teams, pushing them out. That sort of evolution model is 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 really how I'd how I'd say that um that really needs to work. Yeah, makes perfect sense. How then from I guess the strategy, because obviously the, the the strategy of as an example, Lloyd's Banking Group as a business, right? Obviously, there'll be a, a big commercial play around how you become a better business and, you know, stakeholders and revenue and profits and blah, 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 alongside the really great purpose that you've got, right? Yeah. Of helping Britain prosper and a better customer experience and all, all of this type of stuff. How do you ensure in terms of that data analytics strategy that feeds effectively both of those things at the same time, right? How do you ensure that you get that right? Because uh, that's always a tricky sure. thing to balance out, I guess. I'll, I'll give you a really good example that kind of should demonstrate it. So it's one example. Think about the world of, um, you know, how banks um, have traditionally interacted with customers. So, you know, be sitting on top of an amazing set of data, some amazing uh, algorithms and a, a crunch engine to crunch that through and then push things out way to get feedback, right? But typically they've used those to, I'm going to find out what um, Kyle's next product need is and try and, and the probability of him wanting that over another is greater and, and do all the maths and right, this is the right one, right? And it's continuously showing you things that put in front of you that you might want to buy, right? But when we, in reality, we know that you're probably only going to need a product every four years, but in between that, you've got loads of service needs, right? And there's loads of things that you need to do with your banking that are painful for you, are annoying, that you need to be right. So 
one of the things about our purpose is it kind of really enables us to really think much more broadly around what are all of those service needs that that a Kyle would have? What are all the opportunities that we can remove friction um, from your daily banking life such that you don't even have to think about banking? It's it's all done for you, that there's very minimal effort. And then, so if you've experienced that for like, you know, a year of, wow, like, you know, my bank is really helping me. They're, they're removing friction. They're making my, I don't want to think about paying a check or paying a bill. It's it's all done for me. They're sending me lots of very personalized, um, you know, notifications. I can act on it immediately. Um, you know, this is this is really frictionless. Then when the time comes where you've got a big life event, you're going to be much more open. So that's kind of really one mechanism around thinking, you know, the the purpose really unlocks you to think much more broadly. You'll get a much, much bigger mix of service messages and friction reducing things that, you know, probably don't make you money, right? But if you look at all of them together, they've earned you the right to then get that big um, at the right time. So it, it's that sort of thinking uh, that um, that is what I, you know, I feel that the purpose absolutely unlocks. But it's also an area that lots of banks, you know, and uh, they just don't get right. Like it's, it's it's you know it's it's very narrowly focused on the uh, the 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 dollar dimension only rather than the service experience and uh, you know um, friction r- removing aspects as well. Yeah, that's really interesting because I guess they're what you know and you as you rightly said m- most business and I think we've we've gotten to this place now within the data analytics community where because we've spent so much money and things haven't maybe quite panned out as the way we'd hoped often the conversation is immediately drawn to, well, I've invested X already. If we do this, what is the return on investment, right? So I think we've kind of, we've, we've kind of narrowed in so much on that conversation that we've almost tripped ourselves up a little bit as a community because now we have, yeah, we have to kind of, we have to focus on that. But what you're effectively saying is rather than the business strategy enabling the purpose, the purpose of what you're doing ultimately then feeds back into allowing you to execute on the business strategy when the time is right. Absolutely, and it sort of gives you a like a a, a better way of looking at it. Um, so, for lots of things, just looking at the dollars. So, for example, um, in my you know one of my previous roles, I uh, had the I worked for this visionary guy that ran ran the digital teams, and um, you know the loads of new apps were being built. Um, you know, some of them had various nudge capabilities. And I, I myself was trying to work through, well, what's the business case? How do I, what are the right metrics to show how much, you know, we spent? And he'd say, throw that in the bin. What we really need to focus on is basically how people are using this, whether they're using it. And the key thing is, if you're building a capability that basically, um, this is about 10 years ago, right? If you're building an app that um, customers are using, right, the money will come and really focus very, very hard on usage rates. And don't worry about whether you're making money. If people are using it, uh, you know, within six months, within a year to 18 months, the, the the monetization of opportunities. And so it makes you think very differently about the journeys, the experience. It's now optimized around making it easy to use, making people want to use it, reasons to use it. And then when that becomes a habit, you can then start to make money. And so uh, it, you know, it's, it's that sort of thinking that our, Purpose also unlocks as well, which I'm, you know, um, as I said, very excited about in, in terms of just unlocking more interesting use cases from a, a like a geek like me's perspective. Like for me, it's all about the use cases. I want to build these capabilities, but then use them in much more interesting ways. Yeah, hundred percent. So last question then from me, Renil, on that point. So as you very rightly said, the way to do this is to understand the business problem or opportunity. What are the use cases within that that we can go and add value and impact? quite quickly and work backwards from that right to a starting point however what we found often and still happens quite regularly is that most businesses when they go on this data-driven journey they just jump into it feet first and they don't start at the business problem despite the fact that everyone talks about that's the place that you start and it's kind of a a well-known fact right why do you think that happens in many organizations they don't start at that the right place do you know what? It's because of what I said right at the start around business strategy, data strategy. If you've just got a data strategy, then you're going to build data stuff and just do the platforms thing. So you'll spend, right, I've got a, I'm a CEO, I've got a data strategy. I'm going to spend the next, you know, um, you know, three years, I'm going to build this amazing Hadoop platform and we're going to, you know, we'll build it and then they'll come. So, you know, we used to call that the, the field of dreams approach, build it and they will come. 
And I think that was um, particularly, you know, in the 2013s, 14s, 15s, right, when Hadoop was was the big thing. Uh, a lot of people all over the world got really excited. And all over the world, there are loads of failed Hadoop programs where big central teams be built, you know, at the bank I was at the time, We, you know, that, that, that definitely happened. And you see it all over the world, right? And you end up with these monstrosities that no one uses that you've spent millions on that cost loads to repair. And then the business has moved on. So I think the trick is to think you don't even need a data strategy. They shouldn't even call it that. It's what's your customer strategy? What's your business strategy? The, the data agenda has to enable that. And if you think that way, then you're going to really think about what you're going to build in the sequencing that's going to enable that, right? So that, I think that's that's really key. The, the trick, though, is to also ensure that you've got the robust platforms because you could do that same strategy and end up building lots of tactical solutions that also get you nowhere. So there's a, a middle ground between I want to enable the business strategies with data, but I also need to ensure that I can do that in a reusable way that's sustainable, that I can increment off. Otherwise, you get so you've got to look at it through both dimensions at the same time. That's that's to me the the the, the trick. And I would say a lot of people have learned those lessons. So there's only so many times you can blow a few hundred million on a project and and deliver nothing. So everyone's got the scars. Everyone's learned through that. And I think that in general now people actually get you got to do got to do both. Start with the customer first, work backwards, but also ensure you've got a, a really robust platform to enable that ongoing and you can scale that and you can reuse that that that, that's quite critical too yeah absolutely excellent point well Renil, look thank you very much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show and and chatting to you as always and um we look forward to um seeing how the rest of your um lloyd's banking group journey unfolds fantastic so look i've really enjoyed um you know sharing my experiences and i I could talk about data forever it's um it's one of those things where you know it's it's a like finally people know what it is. I, I remember for, you know, for decades, people had no clue what I was and what I did. <laughs> now it's it's become, you know, fairly mainstream. So I loved talking about what I do and I'd love to come back, you know, whenever you want to have me. But r- real pleasure, Carl. And um, yeah, can't, can't, uh, can't wait to, um, can't wait to, yeah, you know, sort of uh, uh, check it out at the end. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the pleasure's all ours, Renel, and we'll speak to you soon. Cheers. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. Bye. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week.